With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? I have a Cajun chicken sandwich today, Dave. I'm pretty good. How are you? That's outstanding. Cajun chicken sandwich on a Tuesday. Flight to Brazil of a Wednesday. Week is looking up for you. Yeah, no Liverpool game at the end of it, so what do you expect? Exactly. No Liverpool game at the start or the end. Mm. No Liverpool to ruin your week. It's certainly certainly no Liverpool in the middle to make everything bad all the way around. No, no, definitely not. Uh, we are here today to discuss um, the Champions League, Europa League, and, you, you know, God bless the souls of the faithfully departed, Europa, Europa Conference League uh, quarterfinals, uh, with obviously an, an emphasis on the Champions League and less so on the other two. But before we get to that, I need you to explain something to me. Because I'm very confused by what's going on in Spain with Gavi and his contract. So can you explain this to me in in simple terms? What is going on with this contract situation? What is going to happen with him? Explain? Yeah, probably. Simple terms? Probably not so much. Um, The big problem that we have here is that there is... Uh, a bit of a sort of standoff at the minute between obviously Barcelona and La Liga and the Spanish sort of courts, I suppose. It's not like the, the criminal court, obviously, but the court that they're going through for for the ruling to be challenged. And this um, legal battle, basically, that's against Barcelona and is basically being signed by everybody else um, to do with some of the, the, the finances and all the rest of it. So with Gavi specifically... He was, obviously, as a young player, on a youth contract as part of the B-team squad. So in Spain, in La Liga, you're only allowed 25 players to be registered to the first team. So he was outside of that initially, which is no problem. They can still play him. He's just not what is classified as a first-team player. Then he was given, uh, obviously, a new contract, and he was registered to the first team as a player there. That was initially not allowed. There was, obviously, the whole big problem with the with Barcelona's spending budget and all the rest of it at the beginning of the season they did afterwards get over that but then La Liga appealed basically the the allowing of it being registered um as a as a first team player saying that he was 
effectively one of the, the costs that they weren't allowed under the terms, and that technically he is still a youth team player. Excuse me, so Barcelona have tried to register him again. Uh, La Liga have basically said no earlier in the year. Barcelona then obviously tried to take them to court and tried to get it to be allowed. Where are we at the minute? The latest thing, basically, is that there is a, a standoff between whether his most recent contract being signed is valid or not. So Barcelona are obviously saying yes. La Liga are saying no, and they won't ratify it effectively. So he is still technically allowed. He should be fine to play for them on an ongoing basis in La Liga because he could still be classed as a youth player who's just playing. But the Spanish courts at the moment are blocking Barcelona legally registering him as their first team player. The knock-on of all of that is obviously that his um, release clause and the contract expiry date and all of those sorts of things change because he would have been, uh, I think it's this coming summer, he would have been out of contract, basically. Um, whereas, obviously, with the with the new deal, he's like got a completely unattainable release clause built into it. So he's fine. It doesn't make any difference with all this going on in terms of him playing. It does in terms of what happens at the end of the season and all of you know what Barcelona can do later on. There, there was lots of. I can't remember if you. I don't know if you remember, but obviously there was all those lever talks and everything, which was very, very convoluted. And Barca tried to pay themselves and classify that as new money through a third company and all the rest of it. So it's a lot of untangling of all of that going on. And there's still some other bits and pieces like La Liga are suing them, and some of the clubs are suing them, and all this sort of stuff. So off the pitch is is still not quite there. Let's say for Barca at the minute, it shouldn't be a problem longer term. I don't think. But at the moment, he's not officially a senior player. That's really the, the comeuppance of it. Um, basically, if they don't sort that out before the summer, technically he's out of contract. If someone does then try to sign him, Barca would no doubt take them to court or in a, in a you know, European court, perhaps, or something like that. It's very, very messy, assuming it would all get sorted out by then, though. Um, but they've already been told by La Liga and that, that they can't sign anybody new unless they come up with like another nearly 200 million euro. It is incredible what a mess they've gotten themselves into. And despite all the comedic nonsense around their economic levers and whatever else, the fact that they were allowed last summer to go and just, you know, bring in Lewandowski on a huge deal, spend a big a big chunk of money on Rafinha, spend a big chunk of money on Jules Kunde, really made a mockery of the whole thing. And it did very much seemed like they were sort of uh, flaunting the fact that they were circumventing the rules in ways that weren't necessarily in keeping with the rules. So you wouldn't have any sympathy for them if they were to lose Gavi. And I'd be interested to see if some club just decides this summer, you know what, we're up for a, a legal battle. This player is worth it. He's 18, he'll be 19 in August. He's got an incredible future ahead of him. He's an, outra- an outrageously good player. Already at 18, he is outrageously good. I will be interested to see if somebody decides this is worth this is worth the hassle. Let's let's make him a big offer. I can tell you about 20 clubs who that should apply to, starting with ours. Mm, 100%. He, is, he would absolutely be worth it. 100%. Us, like, you look at the, the, the big seven in the Premier League, inclusive of, of newly 
uh, rich Saudi Arabia, uh, Newcastle United, I mean. Um, all of them should be planting large contract offers to his agent. Same goes for Bayern, Dortmund, all the big Italian clubs, PSG. Like, literally, there's not a club around that this kid doesn't improve, um, which is fairly remarkable given his age. But yeah, I, I, if we can't afford Jude Bellingham, um, I would like to see us throw a big offer at him. Like, the legal costs of dealing with Barcelona is going to be less than the costs of buying Jude. So even if it does go to court and you have to pay a bit of compensation, it's not going to be the buyout clause because, let's be realistic, that contract you know that contract doesn't exist now. If, if that's the ruling that's been made, that contract doesn't exist. So Arsa might get 30, 40 million. If if it went their way in court, but they're not going to get what they think. Um, interesting, interesting. Spain is is always good for amusing things like this. I have one other question. Liverpool have been linked to Gabri Viega of Celta Vigo in recent weeks. Carl, he's having a breakout season in La Liga. Nine goals in twenty five games. Nine and twenty eight in all competitions. Uh is he someone that you think Liverpool should be taking a look at for this summer? Uh, obviously, we've had uh, one previous uh, bit of business with Celta Vigo. That was for Iago Aspas. That one didn't work out. But it, do you think, is Gabri Viega somebody that is worth a, a big fee? Is he somebody that would adapt well to the Premier League? Um, I mean... It's limited game time, to be fair, to, to make a judgment on whether he's suited to the Premier League. I think we, we must steer away from the Aspas side of, of any kind of com, uh, comparison here um, in terms of style or whatever, because, you know, quality level, because he's from the same club or anything like that. Um, he's a good player. He's definitely a very, very talented player. Really good at moving the ball between the lines, carries the ball very, very nicely. Um, loves to have a go from from miles and miles out, which is not always the most advisable thing. But he scores a lot of goals because of his one willingness to take on shots, and two his ability to break forward from deep into the penalty area. But basically, he is very similar in style from midfield to the type of players that Liverpool have really struggled with this season and, and previous seasons. Those ones who will just make constant runs to join up with the attack. Um, technically pretty gifted I would say like with the ball at his feet he, he loves to just like I say move really really quickly between the lines absolutely happy to carry it past players over quite long distances but we do obviously with Celta Vigo mostly see him like either counter-attack him or joining up with counter-attacks supplying a little bit of um, possession from deep sometimes he sort of plays mostly through midfield but quite often further forward like if he's come off the bench quite a few times it'll be in a more attack and roll 10 just off the forward sometimes um, so I wouldn't say that we know too much or I haven't at least seen him in too many games where Celta have been the dominant team and he's been asked to let's say create rather than be a, a counter-attacking spark or an addition to the counter-attacking style of play so there's there's definitely still question marks let's say over whether he would suit us if we're a dominant team with how Liverpool are at the moment, yes, of course he'd be a fine addition because we need many new midfielders. And I wouldn't say he'd cost the absolute earth at this stage. Uh, I have to confess, I don't know how long his contract runs for at Celta Vigo. I've no idea about that, to be honest. Um, but he's not been 
senior there for too long, so I guess it's still relatively short term. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Uh, according to Transfer Market, it runs till 2026, contract signed last summer. It's a four-year deal. Um, certainly one, I think, to keep an eye on. I think Sam Maguire had a piece on him recently and mentioned him as a potential Bellingham alternative. And given the news from Ornstein yesterday, it might be that that's the way we look. Although I, I still think Mason Mount is the most likely Bellingham alternative. Um just given his contract situation, the fact that we seem to have done quite a bit of groundwork on that one. Anyway, to move on, the Champions League, the quarterfinal draws have been made. And let's start with the the first game, Real Madrid versus Chelsea. Real obviously knocked us out. Chelsea knocked Dortmund out in somewhat fortuitous fashion. They obviously met each other last year in the Champions League and Chelsea looked like they were going to go through. Uh, having lost at home, Chelsea went to the Bernabeu and, and tore Real apart, absolutely dominated them. But it's Real, it's Benzema, they managed to find a way back in and they went on and won and would obviously go on to win the competition, beating us in the final. Real are not having... The best of seasons, obviously domestically, they are twelve points behind Barcelona. They lost to Barça to Barça in the uh, in El Clasico, and that was obviously a source of great disappointment, especially the manner of the defeat, because uh, there was large stretches in that game where I thought they were the better team. Chelsea, though, are having a disastrous season. They sit tenth in the Premier League, having spent. Well over six hundred million since Todd uh, Bowley bought the club. They are currently behind Fulham and Brentford for geographical reasons. That's quite embarrassing for them because obviously both of those clubs are in the same area of London, and Chelsea have obviously been the dominant force in West London, and now they're the third team in the league, and they're you know four points behind Brentford. Um. This seems like it should be straightforward for Real. Obviously, Chelsea will be will be tough. They have a lot of good players. But it does seem like Real should be heavy favourites going into this one. Yes, because they will be. Um, I, I think this will actually be every bit as routine and a whole lot less thrilling than their two legs against us. Um, I don't think, in the end, <clears throat> it was particularly surprising, let's say, that Real Madrid went through with a fairly big aggregate win over Liverpool, given where the teams were when the draw was made, let's say. It was, most people expected Real Madrid to win. 
including Liverpool fans, let's be honest. Um, it was eventful in the first leg and very, very exciting. I think this one will be Real Madrid are expected to win and it won't be very, very exciting. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing with this Real team is they can, they can adapt to whatever game state is necessary. So if they need to grind out a win uh, in the Champions League, they're always capable. And then obviously if it's a, a wide open game and it's, you know, you shoot, we shoot, and we'll see who scores the most. When you've got Thibaut Courtois on goal, you're always going to have an advantage in that type of game. And when you've got someone as lethal as Benzema and someone in the form of Vinicius Jr., you're always going to have advantages then at both ends of the field. This Real team, though, Carl, it's not exactly... I, I wouldn't call them a formidable defensive team. I think the collective unit is far better than the individual pieces. Uh, they've obviously had some injury issues at left back, but Nacho's been playing there. He's a right-footed centre-back. Um, they, they do have Mendy. Alaba will be back at some point. But, you know, that is an area that can be got at. Carvial on the other side, he's a couple of years past his best. He can be got at. And both Militao, and to a bigger extent, Rudiger, are prone, shall we say, to errors. Now, part of that is because of how aggressive they both are and how both of them are very front-footed. I do think when you play two front-footed central defenders, you can leave yourself exposed in behind. And at stages, we looked like we could take advantage of that before we just sort of gave up the ghost. I do think there are areas here for Chelsea to exploit but obviously Chelsea's big issue is they can't score goals. You look at the, the Premier League this season, 29 goals in 27 games. That's that's really, really poor. You're only looking at you know Palace and Wolves, who are notoriously poor in front of goal. Everton, who've been without Calvert-Lewin all season. Forest. West Ham, who've been a disaster this season. Bournemouth and Southampton. They're the only teams that have scored less goals than Chelsea uh, this Premier League season. Do you do wonder if they have what it takes to take advantage of that one error or that one area of weakness, rather, in that Real team? Yeah, I mean, even recently when Chelsea have been improved, let's say, with the goal scoring with results as well, <clears throat> there's now four in a row uh, that they're, they're unbeaten and it would have been four wins in a row if not for a late Everton equaliser, obviously. But I still don't think even in those games that they've been particularly fluid in attack. I don't think they've been particularly impressive in their uh, speed of build-up play. I think there's been a, a few circumstantial goals where it's just, you know, ball in the box, bit of pinball, set piece, bit of pinball, someone in the right place at the right time. There's been a couple of good finishes, but even like, let's say, Jean Felix's goal against Everton in the weekend, really good finish. But it came off nothing cross, which was only half cleared, and there was nobody really in the box. And it came to someone outside the box who had a good touch, you know, opened up his angle and a lovely finish into the bottom corner. It, a good goal, a perfectly valid goal, but not a replicable type of goal. You know, it wasn't the type of build-up, which if they did it again six more times, they might score another goal off it. It's just fortuitous that it fell to Felix in a good area. And the, the other good chances that they did have, again, I wouldn't really say they were born of 
tremendous build-up play or really incisive passing or runs which are very very uh, repeatable patterns or anything like that so it's they might be getting a bit better in terms of their attack and the build-up play and maybe just by confidence as well with the goals that they have scored it's what uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in the last four games now, which is a big, big improvement on the, on that run beforehand for sort of from New Year's Day through to the defeat to Tottenham uh, at the end of February. That was a really bad run for them, results and goal scoring wise. Uh, so it's improved there, and maybe confidence plays a part in certain individuals who you know maybe a little bit better finishing or make a, a few better runs, that kind of thing. But overall, the, the build-up play from Chelsea is not good. It, it's still a long, long way to go to be what we would recognise as being Graham Potter's Brighton team even, and it needs to be better than that was. So still quite a lot of work to do there. Can they take advantage of those individuals in the rail defence? Probably if they get like maybe Jao Felix or Kai Havertz or whoever one-on-one in those situations with the fullbacks. But I wouldn't necessarily say that as a team, Chelsea's attack is better set up at the minute than Real's defence is at the other end. No, I'd agree with that. And I do think having Kovacic back has been a big factor in their recent improvement in terms of just the number of goals they've scored. I think the partnership with him and Enzo, um, while not ideal, it's better than you know Enzo and Ruben Loftus-Cheek or Enzo and Conor Gallagher. They are heavily reliant on Enzo to be, you know, both destroyer and creator, neither of which are really what you want him to do. He's kind of the guy that connects your destroyer to your creators. But they're trying to make the most of what they have at the moment because, you know, they've they've had such a limited budget they haven't really been able to to spread their wings in the transfer market. Um Mikhailo Mudrik has not worked out yet, but obviously a talented player and 14 years on the contract you you, fig- you figure he'll he'll spark at some point um i can't really see beyond real if i'm honest i just think they have the experience the nous the control the nastiness the dark arts the desire they they're just different in this competition i would say real to go through I think there'll be multiple goals in the difference over the two legs, something like 4-2 or, you know, 5-3, something like that. But I can't see beyond rail. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the two words you picked out there, the nous and just the control as well, that's what's going to be the main difference, even if the first leg is a bit tighter. But across the two legs, I'd go for rail by three. Mm. I think that's fair. Uh, the big one is Manchester City versus Bayern. And we should point out that the semi-final draws have already been made. So the winner of Real Chelsea will take on the winner of Manchester City Bayern. And that kind of clumps the three favourites in one side of the draw, which opens up the other. And I'm excited to talk about the other side when we get there. But Manchester City versus Bayern. I think if you could have given City their choice of who to play... I think Bayern would probably have been last on the list of teams they'd have wanted to face. Uh, Bayern are obviously not having the best of seasons domestically either. Still, you know, very much in the title mix, but not running away with it as they normally do in the Bundesliga. Manuel Nauer out with a broken leg. Uh, That's been a big blow to them. 
They have had issues at centre-back all season in terms of just trying to find the right balance. You know, there's been injuries. Obviously, Lucas Hernandez out for the season with a knee injury. He's probably their best. Oh, no, there's no probably. He is their best defensive player. Um, But Nagelsmann, because he's so adaptable tactically and so fluid with his, his shape choices... I could see Bayern causing City some real problems here. Obviously, City's performance against Leipzig. First leg, I thought they were quite lucky to get a draw. The second leg was absolutely devastating. A 7-0 win, 5 for Haaland. But, you know, Bayern did knock out PSG and, and did it three goals to nil over, over aggregate. So they're used to playing, you know, big names. They're used to playing... Big opposition. They won't be in any way worried about City. I wonder how much, and I know that there's going to be an, an element of uh, narrative about this, but I wonder how much it will actually prove to be a case of one manager or the other over-managing themselves in this fixture. Because, I mean, Nagelsmann is like Guardiola in that way, in that sometimes he tries to find a solution to a problem that's not necessarily right there in front of him um, in, in their consideration of everything which could happen I think sometimes like many other people have said I do think that sometimes those managers um, overlook what will definitely be there in front of them from the opposition and this time I mean they could both really really overdo it or they could both go straight down the line because they don't know what each other's going to do because there are so many variables that Nagelsmann might come up with for example so Pep just says well don't worry about it 4-3-3 strongest team as normal, and we'll see if we, if our players are better. Um, I think this could be the most entertaining tie of the four. I think this will be the most tactically intriguing tie of the four. Um, and I think you can make a case anywhere on the pitch, in all three lines, all 52 lines of Nagelsmann's team, if you want, um, for both teams to say that this is where we'll be stronger and this is where we could win the game. I think this is a really really interesting matchup yeah i do as well um we've obviously got you know many years of evidence of or not I, I wouldn't call it evidence but we've got many years of incidents in which people have pointed at guardiola and said you've just simply overthought that you've tried to be too clever here i do think the the shape that he's been playing of late this Back three with two in front and a line of four behind Haaland. It's a little bit arrogant. And I, I do think that teams that can figure out ways to stop Haaland have caused City a lot of problems. Now, Haaland is, is an absolute machine. It's ludicrous the number of goals that he's scoring this season. But I do think in terms of the cohesion of City and that, that clinical nature of City, I do think he's made them a little bit worse. Because we saw City for the last two years just over and over again, these automated attacking moves, score goals for fun. And while Haaland obviously is scoring silly amounts of goals... It's not like City as a whole are scoring more goals. Last season, they got 99 goals in the Premier League. Uh, this season, with 11 games left, they've got 
67. So to get to match last season, they're going to have to score 32 goals in their last 11 games. That's obviously doable for them. But they're not ahead of last season's pace. They've only scored one more than Arsenal, for example. Um, I do just... I think City ebb and flow too much with you know how Haaland plays. If he doesn't score, he doesn't offer anything. So you basically play with 10 men when he doesn't score. And off the ball, you basically play with 10 men because he doesn't do a whole lot defensively. Pep is obviously trying to force the Grealish issue more this season as well. Putting him in over Foden and Bernardo and Mares at times. And not always to the benefit of the team, just to the benefit of his ego because he decided he needed to spend $100 million on him. I feel like Pep's insistence on, on Grealish and the over-reliance on Haaland and the focus of everything now has to go through Haaland... I feel like that opens a big door for Bayern. It's just a matter of whether Bayern can walk through it or not. Obviously, they managed it against PSG, who similarly are over-reliant on one or two players and skewed the balance of their team to enable those players to do what they do while doing nothing off the ball. But Bayern are having, a, by their standards, a poor Bundesliga season, currently second in the league. A point behind Dortmund, lost at the weekend to Leverkusen in one of the strangest games uh, you're likely to see all season. For those that didn't see it, um, Amin Adli was twice booked for diving in the penalty area. And then upon review, both yellow cards were rescinded and Leverkusen got given penalties on both occasions. But I just I feel like Bayern have a big chance here because... I, I don't like this City team as much as I did in previous years. That's fair. I mean, it is a bit of a different setup for sure. Um, I I wonder how much the Bundesliga thing is going to play into uh, how Nagelsmann in particular approaches it. Because, I mean, Guardiola and City being second behind Arsenal is you know not ideal for them, but I don't think that they'll panic too much even with the gap. But with Dortmund... Being at the minute heading into this international break, only one point ahead, and Bayern play Dortmund on the first game back. You know, if they don't win that game, I think suddenly it brings a lot more pressure to Nagelsmann having to do well in Europe this year. Because you know, it, it's it's not normal for Bayern to not win the Bundesliga. You can get away with it though if your focus is elsewhere, let's say, and they go on and get to. Uh, Champions League final, for example, that would be a, a good consolation to not being domestically dominant. But if they do go into this Man City game needing to go through, or him at least needing to go through, because he's hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable 
there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. You know, maybe maybe that might be something that City uh, deal with far better than than he does. I mean, he's a we know he's a tremendously talented head coach and you know tactically very very uh, deep in matters, but also doesn't have the most experience yet, just because he hasn't been at the top of the very game, um, sorry, the very top of the game for so long yet, and hasn't really been able to go the distance yet with with Bayern, obviously. So maybe. Maybe Pep just kind of reins in his own wishes to change things around and and plays on Bayern's mentality a little bit at that point. So there are so many variables to this. I mean, in a normal season, Bayern v Dortmund on the same day as Man City play Liverpool just before Bayern and Man City play each other in the Champions League would be like enormous. Like that would be there'd be so many extra storylines there. But because Everything is worse this season. Like we've said before, the top sides around Europe are all worse across the board from last year into this year. So Bayern are included in that, Man City are included in that, Liverpool are included in that as well. And it does make for, for quite a different approach, whether it is the team isn't as good or you know the overall level of the football isn't as good or the players are still gelling or whatever it is. There's, there's lots and lots of ways this game could go one way or the other, but in quite a big manner. I mean, this it seems like it could be a quite a tight tie, but I also wouldn't be surprised to see a scoreline of 4-0 in one of these legs. Yeah, that wouldn't be a surprise at all, because, well, it, it would be a surprise to me if Bayern were to beat City 4-0, but it wouldn't be a surprise if City beat Bayern 4-0, because when things do click for City, it can be just devastating. And the problem Bayern will face is that if City go one up and Bayern have to push on, they're going to leave themselves a little bit exposed. And, you know, simple balls over the top for Haaland are going to be very, very simple for De Bruyne, Foden and, and others to pick out. Um, I'm going to pick City to go through. But I do think it's going to be... I, I can see this being, like you said, I can see this being the tie of the round. I, I can see this potentially even going to you know, extra time in that second leg and a late goal wins it for one of them. Yeah, I mean, this. I mean, it could completely go either way, this one. I'm going to go with Bayern, just on the basis of the second leg being uh, their home match. And I think maybe if they can do a really, really good defensive job against City in the first leg, then maybe they'll they'll have that slight advantage, but... Could go anywhere, let's be honest. Cool. Right, let's move into the bottom half of the draw, which is much less glamorous, but I think just as interesting. So let's start with Benfica versus Inter Milan. Uh, Benfica absolutely battered Club Bruges uh, and got Scotty two coats to sack, his second sacking of the season, which made me very happy. Uh, Inter snuck by Porto. Denying us an all-Portuguese quarter-final. Uh, Inter are not particularly good this season, I think it's fair to say. They are third in Serie A, but they've lost three of their last four domestically. Whereas Benfica are ten points clear in Portugal. They've won five in a row. And despite losing Enzo in January, they've just continued to roll on. Florentino Luiz is having an unbelievable season in midfield. Antonio Silva is emerging as arguably the best young centre-back in Europe. 
and Giancarlo Ramos is making them not miss Darwin Nunes. So I think Benfica are the better balanced team here. I think they've also got, obviously, form on their side. But Inter will be dangerous because they do have... In Laturo, who's been much better since returning from the World Cup. In Edin Dzeko, a proven goal scorer. They've got quality in midfield. They've got a strong defensive unit. And Onana, I think, has, has started to show his best form uh, in goal since he's come into the team for Handanovic. So, I do think this is an interesting one. But I think it's probably the one that most people will overlook from these four quarterfinals. I agree, and I think that... Of the people who overlook the tie, most will assume Inter will go through. And I think that Inter are, I think you were being generous by saying they're not particularly good. I would just leave out the word particularly there. I think this is a poor side. Um, I think that they are reliant on a couple of good performers, but I think the defence is like maybe two levels lower than what it was even a season or two seasons ago. Two seasons ago, let's say. Um, yeah, I just... I, I don't like it. I think there's too many second-rate players there now. You know, at wing-back, they've not really kept the same level that they had before. Um, I think even people like Chalanoglu is playing as a, as one of their most important players. And he's, he's playing well, but I don't think he's anywhere near the elite level of a you know, attacking, linking central midfield player. No. Um, I mean, Barelli, even, he's, he's a fantastic player. He's not had his best season, not by a no. long way. So I think that this is a, an eminently beatable uh, into Milan side, regardless of who came up against them, I think Benfica go through here. Hey, just to give a quick rundown on the Inter eleven that started the weekend in the one 0 defeat to Juventus. Onana in goal, he's a good goalkeeper. Uh, Darmian played as the right sided centre back. He's yeah. not very good and has bin. never been very good. Bin, yeah, I mean Muck. But the issue they have there is that Milan Skriniar is the starter in that position and we know he's leaving in the summer and he's currently out with an injury but there's been some questions over whether or not Inter will trust him between now and the end of the season. Uh, Stefan de Vries has fallen off the proverbial cliff. Uh, he played in the middle and a Zerbi who's actually been starting in the middle role played on the left because Bastoni was out. He's not very good either. Uh, Dumfries is... He's serviceable, he's decent, he, yeah, he's okay. DeMarco I wouldn't be a big fan of at left wing back. Terrible. Brozovic is obviously a good player, but he is past his prime years. Barella, like you mentioned, not having the best season. And Chalanaglu, I mean, he's fine, he's a good squad player to have. He shouldn't be starting in the midfield for a team that has ambitions to win things. So, you know, that's where he is. Uh, Laturo started up front with Lukaku, who's had an absolute nightmare season. Um, and coming off the bench, they had Dzeko, Joaquin Correa, Bellanova, Henrik Mkhitaryan, who's 34, 35 at this point, and D'Ambrosio, who managed to get himself sent off in the late stages. That's not a team that's going to scare anybody, if we're being honest. And... I fancy Benfica to get through here. I don't necessarily think it's going to be... I don't think it's going to be all that tight of a Monas Carl. I, I could see Benfica going through quite comfortably here. Yeah, I could see a 2-0 and a 1-0, or a 2-1 and a 2-0 and something like that. I think that Benfica are just the better side. I think they're better set up. I think they're far better in attack. 
I mean, you know, even their, their options off the bench might not be household names, but they're players who fit really well into the system. They're players who are bring a lot of energy and not always creativity, but certainly goal scoring ability. I would say thrust is a, is a good word to use here. They have a yeah. lot of uh, energy and, and enthusiasm off the bench sometimes. So Inter are too slow. Inter are very, very slow. They're not aggressive at all uh, in attack. And I think if you score first against them, I rarely see them do particularly well afterwards. Like against Juve, what, last 10 minutes of the first half, they must have sent over about, I don't know, 20 crosses from deep, not from high up, not really dangerous, not fizzed low, just swung into the middle from about 30 yards out on the flanks. It was dire stuff. Yeah, it reminded me of some of those bad Liverpool games where we get frustrated early on and just start humping the ball into the box with no real purpose at all. Um, hey, well, inter- I'm talking about other teams who were bad here. Did you have to bring the, bring the whole I thing did, I did. I had, to, I, had to throw, I had to throw in a little grenade. Inter actually remind me a lot of Spurs this season, to be honest. In <laughs> that, I mean, they've lost nine times. Nine times. They're, they are currently third in the league, but that's purely on the basis that Juventus had 15 points taken off them. Otherwise, they'd be fourth. And in a hell of a battle for fourth, because you've got Milan, Roma, and Atalanta, who could all easily pass them this season. Um, yeah, I, I think Inter are going out, and it wouldn't surprise me if they're not in next season's Champions League, because there's been... There's been a running battle between Inzaghi and some of the fan base and some of the media, seemingly with the owners as well, and it's becoming quite public. There's speculation over whether or not he will still be in charge next season. That type of situation, especially in Italy, the way things get just magnified, is not going to end well for them at all. Um, So we've both got Benfica going through. And they will take on in the semi-final the winner of our fourth and final quarter-final, which is AC Milan and Napoli. Napoli are not just running away, they are galloping away with the Serie A title this season. They are 19 points clear with 11 games to go. That's 19 points clear with 11 games to go. They've got the best defensive record in Serie A. They've scored the most goals by a country mile 17 goals more than anybody else they are playing sensational football they've been on an absolute tear in on on both fronts both the uh the premier the champions league and the syria uh title pursuit in the champions league obviously they topped the group with us they hammered us we beat them in the second game they just Swept aside Eintracht Frankfurt in the quarter in the round of sixteen, rather. Uh, that's Eintracht Frankfurt. Remember that won the Europa League last season, so they're they're no bunch of scrubs. A two nil victory away from home, followed by a three nil victory at home. I think they've got the best attacking duo in Europe right now, and I would say this even over Benzema and Vinicius, who are sensational. But I think Victor Osman. Kavicha Kvaratskhelia are just sensational and the way they link together is outrageous and the thing for Napoli is it's not just those two that third role is sort of a rotating role 
And you've seen Lozano there, you've seen Politano there, you've seen Raspadori there. All three are quality players who offer something different. They've got great options in midfield. Obviously, the starting trio are Zielinski, who's good, Lobotka, who's unbelievable this season, and Zambo, who's having another good season. You've got Endombele and Elmas as depth options, which is very, very strong. And at the back, they've been really, really good. I think you can make a strong argument that Di Lorenzo's been the best right-back in Europe this season. I'll never be a fan of Mario Rui at left-back, ever. It doesn't matter what he does. I'm never going to like him. But Kim Min-Jae has been one of the revelations of the season. And Amir Rahmani has been great beside him. And Alex Murray in goal is having a really good season as well. Just top to bottom, back to front, side to side. This Napoli team, Carl are immensely strong. And they're taking on a team that currently sit fourth in Syria, a Milan side that look at times like they've lost their way a little bit. Very up and down. No wins in the last three domestically. But they did knock out Spurs. They are capable. They do have a couple of match winners in the likes of Rafael Liao. They're not a team that can just be overlooked. I do sort of feel like if Napoli can get by Milan, it'd make them favourites against Benfica. They're going to have Serie A wrapped up early. And that will mean that all their focus can go on the Champions League. And I, I feel like it might have opened up with this draw for Napoli to go into that final, having taken... The least damage of any, because it's going to be a bloodbath in the top half. Real will have to be Chelsea, and then one of Bayern or City, or, you know, City will have to be Bayern and one of Real or Chelsea, or whatever connotation it works out. Whereas Napoli, Milan, and then Benfica or Inter, they're going to be really happy with that, and they're not going to be stressing and putting in the extra miles trying to win a league title, because that'll be done and dusted. I feel like Napoli should be very strong favourites here. I think the most favoured of any team in any of these games. And I do feel like it's really opened up for them this season for what could be an absolutely historic double. Yeah, I don't think that they there would be another club around Europe as happy as Napoli right now. Not just with the way things are going, but how it's lined up for them here. It is such a massive chance for them. Like, really, really big. It's still difficult enough, but majorly doable. Like earlier this season when they met before uh, Napoli obviously had opened up such a commanding lead and Milan were still very, very confident coming into the season and um, obviously defending their title then. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Napoli absolutely hammered them, wiped the floor with them. It was only a 2-1 scoreline, but Napoli were miles better than them. And on that day, Ossimian wasn't even playing. Valerie didn't even score a goal and they still won 2-1. Uh, which one shows the options that you're talking about there. Giovanni mm-hmm. Simeone was another one. He scored that. Yeah. Um, who I don't think you mentioned in the, in the run of Politano and the rest of them. Um, they've got really, really good options, Napoli, from the bench and attack. I think if they steer clear of injuries in midfield with Lobotka, I mean, even Zambon Gisa, like they've got um, uh, on loan from Spurs, who's completely... And Dombele. thank you. Um, so they're kind of interchangeable. I think Lobotka is maybe the only one I would say is like, they absolutely cannot lose him. And Kim Min Jae at the back. If they can avoid any kind of absences for those two, I don't see too many teams who can beat Napoli over 
90 minutes because even if like Kvalich guy has been incredible but even if he's missing you go down the list of players like the Politano's experience uh, Herve Lozano swapping over to the left hand side you still get that in from out sort of running uh, capable of running at players not the same goal scoring capacity obviously but a different way of doing the same attacking play it's really really good what they've put together there and like you say this this has opened up amazingly for them Milan I think on the other side of it I, I think they've majorly lost their way. Obviously, they've had injuries and they've had to switch around. They've changed formation away from the four-four-one-one, which worked like completely brilliantly for them last season. They were so solid. They've gone to a back three in um, the last couple of months and not not really thinking it's working for them particularly well. But whether he now thinks that he's got to see it out through the season because otherwise it's just too much uh, chopping and changing around and they're going to lose even more momentum because like t- top four is at stake here. They won the title last year, but they're not anywhere near guaranteed to finish in Champions League spots this time around. So Milan have quite a lot of pressure on them at the minute, not necessarily dealing all that well with it. I don't think the 3-4-3 is terrible in terms of suiting some of the players like Ben can get forward a little bit more, De Hernandez obviously gets to do that whole left-hand flank, but people who are like maybe in support of Giroud up front, it's not going great for them. Leao playing as a sole number nine at times didn't go too particularly well I think he was better coming in off the flank there uh, at least in the way that Milan set up so they're, they're struggling at the minute to be honest Milan have won four out of the last 16 in all competitions mm. they're not in a good run at the minute at all Napoli will I mean I hesitate to say wipe the floor with them but they actually could do that before the Champions League tie starts they play each other three times in 16 days the first yeah. game back after the international break is Napoli against AC Milan in Serie A play each other a week and a half after that at the San Siro then, and then the second leg is back at Napoli. So it could be a very, very difficult few weeks for Milan, even more so than it has been so far. But for Napoli, I don't think that they have any fear, any concerns, any anything at all going into this game, as long as, like I say, a couple of players stay fit, free of injury, and they don't you know, obviously lose the intensity and the the work rate that they've had to go along with what has been the best build-up play in Europe this season. Yeah, I mean, they're just sensational. But you mentioned the fact that Milan won the title last season. And it's, you know, worth remembering that last season, Napoli finished third. They were seven points off top. You look at what the two teams did in the summer. So Milan had Florenzi on loan. They made it a permanent deal. He's years past his best. He had a couple of really bad knee injuries and they took away what could have been quite a special career because he he was on the track to kind of succeed. You know, that that party to De Rossi, it was him that was going to be the next one, that sort of gladiator of Rome. Injuries and the falling out with the club skewed all that and he, he moves on. Bring him in. They bring in Cahill Heffernan, who most people won't be aware of, as a very young Irish defender, 17 years of age. One to keep an eye on. They brought Divock Origi in. Big contract. He's been a disaster. Uh, Junior Messias was there last season. They made that a permanent deal. Um, he's not been particularly good this season for them. They brought in Charles de Quetelier, who I think is a very talented player. But he had up most of their summer budget. And let's be fair, it's been pretty disastrous so far. Uh, Malik Thio, or Thiao from Schalke, really, really good young defender. 
21 looks like he's got a huge future ahead of him. That one's worked out. And they brought in a, a young Polish midfielder. They also brought in Aster Franks and Serginio Dest on loan, and neither of them have really worked out. They spent, you know, in the region of about 45 million last summer, somewhere in the region of 35 million net. Whereas Napoli, they lose Insigne, Milik, Elam, Mertens, Ospina, Koulibaly, Ruiz, Unas, and Sirigu. These are all players that had played, you know, semi-important roles. Some are legends of the club, like Insigne, Mertens, and Koulibaly. They lose all of them in one summer. They get Matthias Oliveira from Hatafe, Zambo and Gisa from Fulham. They'd had them on loan. It worked well. They had a cheap buy option. 15 million euro. Bargain. Vicha, 10 million euro. Maybe the bargain, maybe the biggest bargain of the last 20 years anywhere in Europe. At Leo Ostergaard, young centre-back from Brighton, he'd had some loans at Coventry and... I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Stoke and Genoa, really talented young defender. Kim Min Jae, 18 million euro. You get Giovanni Simeone on a loan with an obligation. Endombele on a, on a flat loan. No option, no obligation. Can send them back when they want. Raspadori on loan with an obligation. That is an unbelievable window. Like, they made a significant profit in last summer's transfer window. And they completely turned their team around. And they've gone from seven points off top to 19 points ahead in the title race and 23 points ahead of Milan. They have turned Serie A on its head with one brilliant summer of business. Now, obviously, no one expected Kavicha to explode the way he has so quickly. No one expected Kim Min Jae to come in and look like one of the three or four best centre-backs in Europe straight away. But you do have to give enormous credit to them for how well they identified the players they wanted to bring in and how well they structured these deals, like getting Simeone and Raspadori on loans with obligations to buy, just to push that extra bit of money off down the line a little bit they can pay for them next summer. 
And you'd imagine that if they win the league and potentially win the Champions League or even just get to the final of the Champions League, they'll keep this team in place and potentially add to it even further. And you'd really have to take a long, hard look around Europe to see a team with a more exciting short-term future. And I say short-term because eventually some of these players will move on from Napoli because they're not a club that's going to keep them. Serie A doesn't have the finances to really keep the best players there long, long term. But in, in Kavicha, in Kim Min Jae, in Osman, in Labaka and these other players, this is a core that could be together for the next three, maybe even four years and really put together an incredible run where they win multiple league titles and compete every year to get to the late stages of the Champions League because it is quite a young team overall. They do have obviously some experience, but by and large, these are players who are early to mid-20s. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how that process of sales goes. One, because, uh, would it be fair to say Napoli are not always renowned as the easiest negotiators to deal with? Um, it, it will be a thing, though, at some point that, you know, one of them, maybe two of them will want to move on. Not necessarily an entire team breakup in the way that, you know, can happen with an Ajax or something like that. Consider it as a, a markedly bigger league, but finances, the amount that they can consistently challenge for at maybe a Real Madrid or whatever obviously will be far higher than Napoli can sustain over the longer period. But what they do tend to do is get really good contracts with those players. So, you know, if it's a Simeon or whoever, they, they, they lock that down. They lock that down good so that they get a very, very strong deal for themselves when it does become time to sell or they have a much stronger hand if they simply don't want to sell. And you can kind of see the payoff of that, you know. It's not always about getting the profit, but sometimes making the stand on which player you do want to keep and build around and keeping that quality there because sometimes the payoff in a sporting sense instead of the finance can be like this season. If they do go on and make a Champions League final and win the league, that's like historical stuff for Napoli. Yeah. Amazingly historical stuff. So on the one hand, maybe then it is... A natural peak and maybe a player or two wants to move on from that but you know we spoke about Spalletti right at the beginning of the season I remember and I, I I think he's very very good at team building I think that's one of his biggest strengths so even if they do as long as things don't implode between himself and the ownership which is usually what tends to happen with the end of a Spalletti uh, period at a club himself and the fans or the himself and the owners uh, he, he shouldn't really have too many problems integrating whoever the new faces are the replacements are into the team yeah i mean massive credit needs to go to cristiano Giuntulo. Giuntulo, who's the director of football there very much works in the background you never hear anything about him he seems to have a really good relationship with spalletti it seems to act as a buffer between spalletti who you know he's a fiery character and de laurentis who's an absolute head case uh who is the 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 owner and president of the club or chairman of the club. Um, the thing with De Laurentiis that we know, and we can use the example of Kaladu Koulibaly, is he will sell players when he wants to sell them. 
Not necessarily when other clubs want to buy them, not necessarily when an agent comes and says, my player wants to leave. He will make the decision that he thinks is best for the club. I mean, you look at the Koulibaly case. When we signed Virgil for £75 which is over five years ago now, which is is crazy to think about, Koulibaly was was the next big centre-back to move at that time. And everybody said, well, you know, he won't probably be Virgil money because he's not Premier League proven. But United or Chelsea will buy him and it'll be 65 to 70 million. And United wasted 80 million pounds on Harry Maguire. It was in part because when they rang Napoli, they got hung up on. Chelsea tried to sign him for a number of years and offered 50, 60, whatever amount of, of money. In the end, they just hung on to him, rinsed every last bit that they could out of him, and they sold him last summer for 33 million. Half what they could have gotten had they sold him a couple of years earlier. I wouldn't be surprised if he looks at the situation with Osman and thinks, I'm going to do the exact same thing. Like, why do I need to sell him? He's got multiple years left on his contract until 2025. We think we can get him to renew. I think he probably will renew if they win the league. Same goes for Kavicha. Because the thing with Napoli, we always look at, at it from a Liverpool lens. And Liverpool's a special club. And if you win something at Liverpool, it means more than winning it at another club maybe that have had a lot more recent success. Napoli and Naples as a whole are very much the Liverpool Football Club and Liverpool City of Italy. It's that kind of outpost that has been long looked down on by other major cities. In Liverpool's case, obviously, London and Manchester. For Napoli, it's Rome and Milan. They look down on Napoli. The government hasn't given Naples the help that it needed at times when it was going through you know, major financial issues. The same way the English government didn't give uh, didn't give Liverpool the, the the help it needed in the 80s. So for Kavicha, for Simeon, for him, for Labotka, for all these players, you win a league title at Milan or, you know, Real. You go to Real, you win something major. It's great. But you're just another guy that won something. You win something at Napoli and they'll give you the freedom of the city. You can do whatever the fuck you want. You will be a god until the day you pass away. Maradona, at any point in his life, could have walked into the mayor's office in Naples and said, get out, I'm taking over. This is my city now. The whole city would have banded behind him. Nearly 30 years after he left the club in disgrace because of what he did when he was there. If these players win the league, which they haven't done since Maradona, and win the Champions League, which they've never done, these will be gods among men in that city. And it's a very special thing to be held in that regard, especially as outsiders, like, you know, foreign-born people. Um, I don't know, I, I, I feel like Naples as a whole is the right place 
for this group of players to be and to stay and to create something really special. Because Osman's on our uh, is only was he twenty one? Like, there's no reason he couldn't stay with Napoli for four more years and then move on to Real. The same goes for Osman and what is he, twenty three, twenty four? He could do another three years there and still have his peak years ahead of him. The same with Kim, I think he's twenty five. If there's no real reason to go other than the finances if this Napoli team is going to be capable of staying together, continuing to win. The riches will come in, in from many different directions and it won't just be, you know, financial riches. It'll be life enrichment and all sorts. So, I don't know. If, if I, could, I could get inside their heads, I think I'd be trying to convince this entire group to stick together and see what can be built over the next two, three years. Because this is this is year one. This is year one of this team. Imagine what they could be in two to three years with an ambitious owner, a brilliant sporting director, a very good manager who, who really has won me over this season. And this core of players, like the sky is the limit with this team. Yeah, I mean, the the play that they have, I, I do want a little bit, and this is not to do with the domestic form, but how far they can go in Europe now, is how much they have benefited in the same way as uh, Barcelona, for example, Borussia Dortmund and Arsenal in the other clubs, the other top clubs not being right at the top of their game. So we'll see that in the latter stages now uh, with, with some of the teams they could face, or at least in the final if they get there. But they are playing better football than anybody else and it's not just the build-up play it is that real intensity that they have it's the very very aggressive nature of defending that they have uh, a real togetherness of the team that they have all those things which in season two in season three those are the harder things to keep going not the not the speed at which you attack not the amount of goals that you score it's all the other stuff that goes with it so i think it's a great project and team to be watching over the next couple of seasons I think a lot more teams now will be paying attention to who they are linked with and who they tried to sign in the summer. So they may find that a little bit more difficult as well. Um, but you know what, that's, that's kind of for the future. This, this next couple of months is just about how much they can let people dream and how much they can win. Cause it could be like we say, an, an absolutely historic season. That's the thing. It, it could very much be. And you know, you look, you look up and down at the age profile of the team um, Zielinski's twenty eight, Labotka's twenty eight. They've easily got a couple of more, couple more great years in them, uh, assuming they can steer clear of injury. Kim and Jay is twenty six. Alex Murray is is twenty five. Like it is a team that is just starting to hit their stride. Um, Ragmani is is twenty nine. I think he's he might be the oldest starter. Oh no, um, Mario Rui's got to be the oldest starter. He must be thirty one. He is thirty one. Uh, De Lorenzo's 29. So, like, there's a couple of, you know, pieces they'll need to look at replacing. But if they can keep that core together, it, it just, it could be something special. And, look, you might be right, and maybe maybe it is just the fact that, you know, those top teams have fallen off. But, like with Arsenal, if they can stay the course and win the league, the the boost that that will give them from a confidence point of view going into next season, even if those other teams bounce back, that should give them a springboard yep, big to build on from. 
Yeah, absolutely. An acceleration of where you would be otherwise. So definitely make the most of it. So we have a semi-finals. Real Madrid, I have versus City, you have versus Bayern. And then Napoli versus Benfica. Mm-hmm. Cool. Right, moving on to the Europa League. And we'll hit this one much quicker because there's no real point in sticking too long at it. And you probably um, a 45-minute podcast. I did. So we'll run through this quickly. Um, we'll just pick winners in this one. Juve versus Sporting. Sporting obviously knocked at Arsenal. Juve got through against Freiburg. Juve will be favourites, but Carl, I have to say, I, I do fancy Sporting to turn them over here. I'm going to go Juve. I think Juve have been in better form. I think they've been playing a bit more together and a bit more defensively sound in the last few weeks. So if that continues into into these two legs, I'll, I'll go for them. Cool. Moving on then, Manchester United versus Sevilla. Manchester United obviously doing pretty well domestically. Um, knocked out Real Betis in the last round. Sevilla are the masters of this comp- uh, competition. They got by Fenerbahce. United will be favourites, and I think that's who I'd pick. Yes, Sevilla are rubbish. Sevilla are in danger of relegation, and Sevilla have today, when we record this, sacked Jorge Sampaoli as well, so they will be looking for a third manager of the season. Uh, he has actually got them further away from the relegation zone than when he took them over. They are now two points outside the drop zone instead of one. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a bizarre season for them. Yeah, it's not a bizarre season. Please. This is an entirely predictable season from the minute they signed Isco as their flagship signing. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. That is, a, it is interesting from from a United point of view that you know Barcelona, Betis, now Sevilla. They're they're getting quite used to playing in Spain. Uh, moving on, Feyenoord versus Roma. Feyenoord absolutely annihilated Shakhtar in the second leg, winning seven one to go through eight two on aggregate. Uh, against Roma, Jose Mourinho looking to shithouse his way to yet more European glory. And it's as good as Feyenoord have been this season, it's hard to see that Roma won't go through here. I agree, Shithousery could win the day, but I am going to be the eternal optimist and I'm going to go with the attacking football-minded team who have scored 10 goals in their last two games. Uh, Feyenoord seem to be thriving on the actual situations as much as the football at the minute, the, the, the big games. And I've been watching them all, I have to say, I've only been seeing some of the highlights, so I'm not going to say that this is they've been playing exceptionally well, but in the biggest of games that they've had over the last few months, they've won them, and they've found a way to win them. The BIX 3-2 at the weekend and did watch that one, and again it was you know, a similar thing where it was, they were playing best and they really rose to the occasion when Ajax were themselves trying to get on top of the game or looking like they were going to go on and win the match. So I'm going to go for final to keep doing that and keep alive their own hopes of an unlikely and historic double. Yeah, they're six points clear and that win over Ajax was away and they came from behind to get the win. And Schlott has them playing really good football. Uh, little surprise that he seems to be Leeds' top choice if they stay up to take over in the summer. Whether or not he'll be interested, I don't know. Uh, the last one then is Bayer Leverkusen, managed by one Xabi Alonso, versus Union St. Gilles, owned by Tony Bloom, who also owns Brighton. Um, Leverkusen will have to be favourites here, considering reputation, but... They're not having the best season. Uh, I know Xabi has improved things, but remember last season they were a Champions League qualifier. It was not like he took over a team of scrubs. He took over a quality squad. I think I'd pick Leverkusen to get through here, but 
you know, it, it could be it could be quite an interesting game. Uh, Union Saint Judos are currently second in the Belgian Pro League, only three points off top, and having won the last three in a row domestically, they're in form and they're confident, and it will cause problems for Leverkusen. It will, but I'm going to tell you why I'm going to go with Bayer Leverkusen to win this one. And it's a Liverpool link, and it's a bit of a convoluted one, and it probably has nothing at all to do with anything, except I want it to. So they're managed now by Xavi Alonso, of course, uh, who used to play for Liverpool, and he once scored a goal from the halfway line against Newcastle in a game where Scott Parker was on the opposite side, and Scott Parker's just been sacked by Club Bruges, who play in the same league as Union saint gilles and that's why... Shabby's going to win this game. I like that. I like that. There's no sense to it at all, but I like it. Uh, like the Champions League, this draw has broken quite well for potentially Roma or Leverkusen or Feyenoord because you would have said the three strongest teams, Juve, Sporting and United, all in the top half. So, uh, yeah, should be interesting. I think that competition's shaping up to be quite good. Now on to the big one. Uh, the one we'll be looking forward to next season, the Europa Conference League, sponsored by Vanarama, Lidl and uh, Poundland, or Deals if you're in Ireland. Um, Lech Poznan versus Fiorentina. Uh, Poznan beat Gardens 5-0 in aggregate. Fiorentina demolished Braga and then demolished Sivaspor, so they're looking good in Europe. I think I'm going to go with Fiorentina here, Carl. Okay, give me one second. I'm loading a flip a coin page. Who's at home? Uh, Lech Poznan home in the first leg. Right, their heads and the away team are tails. And winning the first game is heads. Who's that? You're going Lech Poznan. Yep, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, it's Basel versus Nice. Uh, Basel came through on penalties over Slovan Bratislava. Nice knocked out the mighty Sheriff Tiraspol. Um, I'm, I'm going to go for Basel to win because I just I don't like Nice. And we flip. And it's heads. Basel are going through. Congrats. Basel against Lech Poznan in the semi-final. Unlike the other two competitions, the stronger half in this one seems to be the bottom. So we have Ghent who are fourth in the Belgian Pro League against West Ham, who are battling relegation in the Premier League. Ghent knocked out Istanbul Besiktas in something of an upset. Uh, West Ham breezed past AEK Larnaca, uh, 6-0 in aggregate. So I- I'm going to go West Ham. Flip the coin. It's heads again, three in a row, unprecedented. Congrats to Ghent. Sorry, West Ham, terrible season continues. And go through. Then we have the surprise package Anderlecht, who knocked out Villarreal in the last round, uh, going up against another surprise package, AZ Alkmaar, who knocked out Lazio. This could be an all Belgian semi final if your coin flipper stays the same way. I mean, this is a, a lot of surprise results that you're talking about in this competition. It's almost as though nobody gives a shit. Yes. Flip a coin. Here we go. It's heads again, four in a row for the heads. So you've got an old Belgian uh, semi-final versus a Polish-Swiss semi-final. The viewing, can you imagine the ratings for a potential 
Lech Poznan versus Anderlecht final. Uh, tens of people will watch that one. <laughs> Where is it being played? <laughs> um, in Prague. Prague. Be a lovely yeah. weekend for all 30 people going. <laughs> Plenty of tickets available on the secondary market. I've been on the door. Turn up an hour beforehand. Uh, Come on. It would be very moise if he manages to finally win a trophy with West Ham in this comp- competition and they get relegated at the same time. <laughs> it would be brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Right, that will do us for today. You are away on your holly bops. Well, you are going for work, but you're also taking a few days uh, rest and recovery in Brazil. So go and enjoy yourself. What time is the flight tomorrow? Very, very late. How long is the flight? Very, very long. 15 hours, I think. Oh, yuck. Do you have a stopover or anything? No, I'm going direct. Oh, Lord. Oh, I couldn't. Uh, 15 hours on an airplane. Jesus, no, no, no. Radio, that will do us. Thank you all for listening. Carol, if you have anything to plug, do it now. Uh, no, I'll do it when I get back. I've got 15 hours. I've got to write stuff. There you go. You're 15 hours there, 15 hours back. I expect at least six articles uh, when you get back, plus the time you have over there to uh, to focus on Formula E, uh, which is, you know, it's interesting. Will you get to a game at all when you're over there? I'll be watching a game, uh, the Brazil playing Morocco while I'm over there, so I'll be watching that in a bar because it's in Morocco, sadly. Uh, international oh, shit. Break, not going yeah. during the matches. But Bamelis might be playing a game while I'm there, depending on how one of their cup matches go through, so maybe. If they are, make sure you get to it. Abel Ferreira's boys are always good to watch. Right, that'll do us, folks. Thanks as always. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.